If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 9. We are continuing our series on the, um, the names of Christ. If you're able to see these banners, there's one up here to my left, and I think there's one in the back. Uh, wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. We're going through the names of Christ. And uh, I think today we're going to focus on Mighty God. Mighty God. Uh, I was asking our students in Equip this past Tuesday, I said, which of the four names do you feel like you need the most right now? Uh, which characteristic of God do you feel like you're in a season with where you feel like you need God to reveal himself to you? And I'd like to ask you that question as well today. It'd be interesting to have you reflect on that. Uh, Uncle Tony uh, thought that they would all pick Prince of Peace because we live in a culture of anxiety. Um, but I was surprised. They actually, most of them chose Wonderful Counselor. And uh, if you weren't with us last Sunday, there was a, a sermon on that, and uh, it's, it's worth checking out. But today we're going to focus on Mighty God. Um, so why don't we uh, dive right into the text, and then I'll pray, and we'll get going here, okay? Um, today's sermon is going to be a little bit different. I know sometimes when I'm up here, it probably often might feel like a fire hydrant coming at you with lots of different verses. Well, in that case, it won't be very different today. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're not going to be expositorily preaching through Isaiah 9. I'm just going to mention it. And we're gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you how Jesus is the mighty God, particularly um, before his birth, in the Old Testament, um, during his birth, during his life, and even coming at his return. Uh, many, most uh, false religions and cults uh, err on this level. If there's one thing that they twist or distort about Christianity, it's this. It's the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, he is not God. He's a Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses believe he's a lesser God. Uh, Mormons actually believe he's kind of like the brother of Lucifer. Um, Unitarians don't believe in, in, in Jesus being God. Um, many, many false religions um, really focus on this. And so if you're ever in a situation where you are needing to wonder whether somebody uh, is coming from a faith that is really based on biblical Christianity and traditional historic Christianity, one of the key questions is, is what do you believe about Jesus? And, uh, you know, in our culture today, it's very common for, especially when Hollywood does movies about Jesus, to make him very relatable. You know, I remember a few years ago, it was The Last Temptation of Christ, and they had all, you know, Jesus, you know, lusting after Mary or whatever. And, you know, if you've seen made-for-TV movies about Christ, often it's, it's him being very human. And they want to bring him down to earth, which I believe when you read the Gospels, you, you see that. You see Jesus tired. You see him weeping. You see him hungry. You see him very incredibly human, very compassionate and very loving. Um, but the other uh, reality is, is that we believe that not only was he fully man, but he was fully God. He had a 100% human, na divine nature that he never let go of. Now, he let go, he emptied himself of some of the privileges of that deity when he came. But if he's not God, then he cannot satisfy the wrath of God and die on the cross for us. And that's why false religions tend to say, no, he's not God, because that takes away the cross. And once you take away the cross, well, then what do we need? We all, when you take away the cross, you don't even need sin. 
because we're not sinners. We're all basically good people, and everybody gets in, and we're all good. I'm okay. You're okay. And you get that type of religion, or you get somebody else telling you what you should believe about whatever whatever so historical person said. So Jesus Christ's divinity and his humanity are essential. And last week, I think the wonderful counselor that emphasizes uh, to, to some degree his, his, his humanity, that he empathizes and that he sympathizes and that he suffers with us. But the reality also is today is he is mighty God. Let's look at Hebrews 9. I'm not Hebrews 9, Isaiah 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. You know, most of the scriptures that were written were written to people who were in suffering and pain or persecution. I want you to stop and think about that because this morning we're going to talk about God being a mighty God and his power and his awesomeness. And you might, the question might come up to you today like, well, if he's so awesome and mighty and great, then why am I living in a land of crap? You know, why is this world so broken? Why is the cancer coming back? Why is, you know, the, the marriage not healed? Why, why is there so much, you know, unanswered prayer? Why is there so much darkness? And even right off the bat here, he says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. And so he's looking ahead. He's for, the Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet is, 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 is looking ahead. And, but he realizes that in the moment, the people that are receiving this are in dire straits. And, and that's so true. I'm going to keep emphasizing that point this morning because I think it's important for us to know that God can be mighty and powerful and awesome, and very often he reveals himself in the darkest of times. And uh, it doesn't mean that we always get our miracle in the moment or that he always does what we want but he, because he is God. Look at verse 2. It says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this hope that we have as we um, light these candles this morning. We're, we're looking forward to celebrating the first coming of Jesus. But he already came. <laughs> and, and so in another sense, we're also, Advent is really also about us longing for the second coming. And uh, we know that this prophecy was not fully fulfilled yet. It's a partial fulfillment. He has come, and he came as a humble servant. Thank you, Lord, for being the, the baby in the manger and the, um, the Savior who died for us. But, Lord, we also look forward to when you will reign and you'll come back as king. Lord, I ask God that your word would take precedent today, that your word would not return void. I pray that my words, in, in as much as they are not your words, would fall flat, but it would be you, Lord, that gets glorified. I pray that you direct us, Lord. Give us a hunger uh, to know you. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. I love the story of the, of the woman who was desperate to have a bird um, and to have a bird that could talk. And she went to the pet store and, and went to get a, a talking parrot. And uh, <laughs> um, I love birds, actually, myself, um, but uh, I never had a, a, a talking parrot. But the, uh, the, the store owner said that the bird talked. And uh, the store, that he wouldn't talk in the store, but he'll talk when you get home. So she, she buys the bird, she goes home, and she tries doing all these things to get the bird to talk. And he doesn't, he doesn't just say anything. So she goes back about a week later, three or four days later, and she says, you know, he's not talking. Well, you know, is he exercising? You know, you should get him something like this ladder here, put it in the cage, he'll go up and down the ladder, and once he starts exercising, he'll feel free to talk. And so she buys the ladder, and, you know, nothing happens week later, she comes back, and she goes, he's still not talking. She's like, well, why don't you buy another bird, you know, that he, she can, he can talk to? And uh, she's like, you want me to buy another bird? These are so expensive. He goes, well, no, here, take a mirror and put the mirror in there. When, he, when, when the bird sees the mirror, he'll think that there's two of them, and he'll start talking. She's like, great idea. Does that, uh, does all, you know, comes, comes back, and nothing, nothing. Do parrot doesn't say anything. So finally she goes back again, and he's like, well, you know, maybe, you know, they need a little bird bath. We have this little bird bath you could purchase, and you put this in there, and she, she buys a bird bath. She kind of walks out, ah. sets up the bird bath, and the bird goes in it, but doesn't talk, you know. Uh, fourth time goes back, you know, he says, well, maybe the bird is just kind of like overexcited. Why don't you put a cover over it, you know, and just kind of cover it. And, and see if it can, you know, just wants to be alone for a little while. Maybe it's feeling a little bit too nervous. So she goes and she puts the cover over the cage and a light cover. And uh, finally, about uh, after like a week, you know, taking the cover on and off, you know, she, the, baby, the bird is dead. <laughs> and uh, she's like, she's so sad. She goes back to the store owner and she says, the bird died. And the bird, and, and the owner is like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, what, you know. What's the deal? And you know, she wanted like a refund and everything. And I'm not sure if he gave her a refund, but he did ask her this. He said, did, he, did the bird say anything before he died? And, and, and she said, well, actually, he did. He, like, what did he, he goes, what did he say? He goes, don't they sell any bird seed at that store? <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, sometimes we, we forget to keep the main thing the main thing. She was getting all these apparatus for him to try to keep him happy, but she forgot to feed the bird. Okay, and I was thinking about this with this whole series and this whole Christmas season. You know, we can forget to keep the main thing the main thing. What is the main thing? Is the main thing coming to church and checking a, a list and, and, and fulfilling an obligation? Is it even getting inspired? Well, if Jesus is your life coach, you know, maybe that's what it is. And so how we see Jesus is the main thing. If he's your lucky charm, then you're like, yeah, I'm here today and I hope things get better in my life, you know. If he's your Jesus clause, you know, it's kind of like, oh, well, you know, I hope he gives me what I want this Christmas. But the reality is, if Jesus is God, in fact, John 17, 3 says this, and this is eternal life. Jesus said this, this is eternal life, that you might know him. The only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He's praying that, and he's praying it for his disciples. And he says, this is eternal life. I pray that they will know him. The most important thing is us relating to God. That's the main thing. And, I, and as we open up God's word tonight, it's going to be a fire hydrant. You're going to hear a lot of words, you know, and those of you who, you know, have a variety of attention spans, you'll float in and out. But I want to I keep you, okay? 
But here's what I'm going to say. is It's not about the Bible it's alone. It's not about the, the rituals. It's not about what we say. It's about you relating, you and I relating to God, knowing him. And that word know means experientially. It means having a relationship. And here's the problem. If you get a caricature of Jesus that is wrong, he's not divine. He's not fully human. He doesn't understand you. Uh, he's the life coach. He's the therapist. He, he's, you know, he's the lucky charm. If you get that wrong, you'll constantly be in a wrong relationship with him. How many of you have already seen two people in an unhealthy relationship with each other in your lifetime? participation sermon here. How many of you have seen two people in your lifetime in an unhealthy relationship with each other? Yeah. How many of you have seen this? Two people in an unhealthy relationship and everyone around it can see, everyone around them can see it's unhealthy except the two people who are in it. <laughs> yeah. That's scary, isn't it? Yeah. And why is it the two people who are in it can't see that it's unhealthy? There's a lot of reasons for that. <laughs> when I talk to students in schools, I talk about how they're blinded by eros. They're blinded by romantic love. Sometimes they're blinded by the physical or the sexual. I've had a girl once say, I don't want to see it. I'm like, what? You don't want to see if he's cheating on you or if he's lying on you, if he's doing stuff behind your back? She goes, no. I go, why not? She goes, I just want to be happy, happy in the moment. Well, here's the deal. If you're relating to a person you're not, and you're not seeing them in a healthy way of who they are, it's going to create an unhealthy relationship where it's going to end up ending in disaster and more hurt and pain. And I think a lot of people leave the church because they're not relating to the true God. Let's look at what it says here. It says, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. We're going to focus on Mighty God today. I'm going to explain to you what that means. Mighty God literally means El Gabor. There's so many names in the Bible for God. In fact, um, I highly recommend for your own way of getting to know Jesus is that you kind of do like a little study on that. I put this together. Uh, it's actually um, from Henry Blackaby's book, Experiencing God. It's, it's literally, I think it's exhaustive. It, it, might, it may be comp almost exhaustive. Of all the names of God in the Bible, all the names that the Father is called, all the names that the Son is called, and all the names the Holy Spirit is called, it's on the back info table. You can grab one. But it's interesting that Jesus is called these four names. And uh, this particular name is El Gabor. Everyone say El Gabor. El Gabor. Yeah, it basically means the mighty warrior. The mighty warrior. Now, El is a word for God. So, because some people will say, even Jehovah Witnesses will say, well, the word warrior, it means hero. So he's just, he's a hero like other men. And there's some truth to that. But whenever it's put El Gabor, that means might the, the mighty God, okay? Because El, El Shaddai is the Lord Almighty. El Olam is God eternal. There's so many names of God. And you say, who cares? Well, it gives you a dimension of, to, of helping you to understand the characteristics of God. Now, each name, and I think Pastor Dell brought this out last week, that the name is significant. When you name someone or when someone has a name, it's meant to reveal something about who they are and their character. So the word for God here is the simple Hebrew El, the most basic word for God, and the same word used of the Messiah in Isaiah 9, 6. Now it's also used, right, you know, in case some people say, well, he's talking about just mighty hero. You know, he's not saying that the son is going to be God. It's also used in Isaiah 10 in literally the next chapter. 
and this is in Isaiah 10, and this is where we're going to start jumping around. So those of you who like to, I, I would love for you to, to hear the, the ripples of your Bible or to hear that, that beep on your computer, no, I don't know, on your phone, I don't think that'll happen, but, um, but some of it will be up on the, on the, on the uh, screen as well. He, Isaiah 10, in literally the next chapter, he says, in that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of Jacob, will no longer rely on him who struck them down, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God, El Gabor. He, who are you going to return to? Not some hero or some you know, warrior. You're going to return to the God. And so here, this is clearly, what are they referring to? They're referring to the Lord Jehovah, the one true God of Israel. Here he is plainly called the mighty God in the very same prophetic context. Indeed, only a chapter apart. So um, uh, it's also done in Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32, El Gabor shows up. Ah, sovereign Lord, another name for God. God is sovereign. He reigns. You have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Now let's stop here for a second. I love this verse. And I'm going to do that throughout today. I'm just going to like stop on a verse because I know they're on the screen. You're not looking, most of you are not looking it up. But this is just a great memory verse. How many of you have gone through difficulties and hard times? Yeah. I love the story of the, um, of the boy in the sandbox. As he was, he was digging in a huge rock in the middle of the sand, he dug till he loosened the stone. Once loosened, he pushed and he shoved, even using his feet to the edge of the sandbox. The problem then began for the young boy. No matter how hard he tried, the stone just rolled back into the sand. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen this happen with a little kid. His dad was watching from a window and noticed that the little boy was so frustrated and angry that he began to cry. No matter what he tried to do, he could not get the huge rock out of the sandbox. When his father came to the sandbox, he asked, why didn't you use all of your power to remove the stone? And the kid's like, I did. <laughs> you know, I'm trying. He replied, I did. I pushed with my hands and I feet only to fail. No, son, his father answered. You didn't call for me. With that said, the father moved the rock outside the sandbox. There are certain things that we can do in our own strength, but there are some certain things that only God can do. And that's why I love this verse, because it says, you know what? Nothing is too hard for you. Uh, I asked the uh, first service this question, and I think it's a question I've asked before. It's kind of a fun question. What do you think is the greatest miracle in the Bible? And there's lots of miracles in the Bible, obviously. Jonah and the whale, it's you know, crazy stuff. Uh, the sun stood still for Joshua. The walls of Jericho, obviously the resurrection of Christ. What is the greatest miracle in the Bible? Now, I think... This one here is a big one, right? The creation, ex nihilo, that God made something out of nothing. So I, I would say the creation. I was asking our students on Tuesday night, and our, our intern, Paul Tamras, he said regeneration is the greatest miracle, conversion. When, some, when a person goes from death to life spiritually on the inside, when you're born again, I don't know if you've ever been born again. If, when you put your faith in Christ and Christ makes you a new person, not only are your sins forgiven, but you become alive to God spiritually. I would agree that that's one of the greatest uh, miracles. Um, but I'll hold my 
tongue and wait a little while to tell you what I think is the greatest miracle in the Bible. All right? Verse 18 says, You show love to thousands, but bring the punishment for the parents' sins into the laps of their children after them. Great and mighty God. There it is again. Whose name is the Lord Almighty. So they're El Gabor, El Shaddai. One more verse, Luke, uh, Zephaniah 3.17. This is what uh, Kent and, and Blanca read. Thank you for doing the Advent reading today. This is such a verse that has ministered to me. I don't know if you ever struggle with um, sometimes feeling like God is against you or God always, only wants to punish you. Uh, I grew up in a critical home with a critical father, and when I came to Christ, I always thought I was, I knew I wasn't good enough for God, but I never thought I was, uh, I never felt like I could measure up. And um, until I realized that it wasn't about me measuring up, it was about what Christ had done for me. Uh, but this verse has encouraged me many times. Look at what it says. The Lord your God is with you. The, the mighty warrior, El Gabor, who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I think so much of our battle with God is we really think that he's not for us, that he doesn't care about us, and he just, you know, he wants, you know, he just wants to s subdue us. And when we think of Jesus as mighty God, we have to recognize that he is king, but he's king on a cross. And what that means is that he loves us. He, he is good. He can be trusted. Most people's problem with religion is somewhere religion has gone astray and manipulated or used power to abuse people. And that's not the gospel. That's not the, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Yes, he's a mighty warrior. But look at what it says here. He's with you. He saves. He takes what? Great delight in you. He enjoys you. I remember... Um, uh, challenging our men not a few years back to go on a, on a spiritual retreat and just to take time to go and be with God, unplug the phone, and just go and like spend a night or two away with God. And every guy who did that came back, and I said, what, how was it? And they said, you know, it was tough. Some of them said, well, I slept <laughs> for part of the time. I was so tired. You never realize how tired you are. But almost all of them said I had a deep revelation of God's love for me. The mighty warrior is in love with us. He is for us, and he knows what's best, and he rejoices over you with singing. I don't know if you're struggling this morning with believing that God cares about you or knows your situation, but I want to give this, I want to present this verse and this truth to you. By the way, again, this was also written to people who were exiled, not hearing God's voice, not, they were in punishment, they were feeling chastised by God because they had rebelled against God, and Zephaniah is saying, you know what, your circumstances may be bleak because of your sin, but guess what, this God is for you, and he's going to save you. One more verse is Revelation 1.8, I shouldn't say one more verse, because there's going to be like 50 more, so I'll stop saying that. Luke, look, Revelation 1.8, not Luke. Luke, look. Uh, look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those pierced him. And all people on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. I am the Alpha and the Omega. This is Jesus speaking, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the vision of Jesus that John had in Revelation 1. And here he is also called the Mighty One. 
So Jesus is called the mighty one. All right, let's unpack this. Number one, Jesus, the mighty God before his birth. We believe from Scripture that the Son is eternal. He did not just take on a sonship when he came to earth. And I'll show you from Scripture how that is. But we believe that, and this is also a test to the fact that Jesus is God. He is eternal in his nature. It's not like he just showed up on earth one day and was like created. In the beginning was the Word, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the Greek is very specific here. You can't twist it, although people have, and they've actually changed their Bible translations. Some cults have done that. It says, he was with God in the beginning. Sometimes you'll have your children ask you, you know, what, what did God do before he created the world? What was he doing? You know, where was he? You know, who created God, you know? And one time somebody said, you know, he was creating a place for people who ask questions like that. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, uh, what was he doing? It says here that the word was with God. And, you know, we know that the spirit was hovering over the water. So the, the, we, we believe in the triune God. And we didn't make that up. It was revealed in Scripture. Throughout Scripture, the Holy Spirit is a person that is, is worship and acknowledge and has the traits of deity. And Jesus Christ is a person. So we believe in one God in three persons. Three persons. Okay? Now, it's very hard for us to get our minds around. But if he were God, if we want to worship a God that we can understand and fully grasp, grasp I think that would be not a God that I'd want to worship, right? God is so much bigger than we are. We can't compare our understanding. But we can look at Scripture. What does Scripture says? In the beginning was the Word. Now, the Word in this context is Jesus. It's the revelation. He's talking about the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So the Father, the Son, and the Spirit had love and fellowship and unity before they created us. Sometimes people th think, think that, you know, they needed to create us because they were, like, lonely. Oh, God was lonely. What did he do? He created man. No, he didn't have to. He's self-existent. He's self-sufficient. And they, the concept of love did not initiate when he created us. They had this love and this, this fellowship, okay? But here it says, Jesus, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Look at this. Verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of all man mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is our mighty God. Look at what Colossians says. And if you're taking notes, these are critical verses to know in the New Testament. John 1, Colossians 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Remember when Jesus was talking to his disciples? He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In John 14, he's like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me except through the Father. And, and I think it's Thomas who says, how are we supposed to know the way? How are we supposed to know, you know, how do, no one has seen God. How do we know it's seen? He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Word became flesh and dwelt among men. For in him, by the way, the firstborn over all creation doesn't mean that he was born. That word is prototokos, and it's always used to, to, to regard, regarded to supremacy in the Greek language. And so it's not saying that he was born. 
um, it means that he's the firstborn. He's uh, the first. He's the supreme over all that were born and all that were not. Because we'll look at verse 16. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Now, this should give us a lot of encouragement because, you know, we live in a dark world. And we live in a world that is right now, in one sense, the god of this world is Satan. And uh, for the first 300 years of the New Testament, when people look to the cross and they claim the, the, the vision of Christianity, when believers, you know, what did they cling to? They didn't cling predominantly to the forgiveness of sins like we do. We always go to God for forgiveness because we know, you know, we, we, want, we want to be forgiven because we know we're sinners. Yes, that was true. They did that. But they claimed God being triumphant over the powers of evil, over the devil. Why? Because they were being persecuted. They were running for their lives. They were getting martyred. All the disciples were killed for this. You know, the thing with the Da Vinci Code and a lot of these people like Bart Ehrman who write these books called How Jesus Became God and the Da Vinci Code, you know, like 500 years later, the church, you know, came up with this idea to make Jesus God so that people would submit and that they could be politically and, and financially under the rule of the Catholic Church. All of those are twisted versions of reality. When you look at the early church, the early church, these people were dying for this. They said we would die for the fact that we saw this man who was dead and now he had risen again. And, and they, you don't die for a lie that you're trying to cover up. It's not like they got in a boat one day and said, hey, let's just make up this idea. He, yeah, he came back from the dead. They were, they were all, the cost of following Christ was incredible for the first 200 to 300 years. And my point here is this. A lot of times, what did they look to Jesus for? They needed to know that he was triumphant over the powers of evil. And the Bible says that when he was on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities. But look at what this passage says. It says that he created them. So this gets really weird because it's like, wow. So the devil and Jesus are not equals, you know. They're not just like fighting each other, you know. And if we pray harder, Jesus will win. <laughs> you know, I used to have that think when I was a young Christian. No. The Bible says that Jesus will defeat the devil with the breath of his nostril. <sighs> You're dead. You're gone. Now, it brings up a lot of questions. I know. Why does he allow the devil to continue? Why is this world continually so dark? Why does he keep the, the devil on a chain, which it says he does? The devil can only do what God allows him to do. I don't know all those questions, you know. Um, I kind of use the analogy as if I'm standing on this side of, the, of, the, of, a, of a house and I'm looking at one side of the roof. I can see this side of the roof. But on this side, I cannot see the other side of the roof. God sees both from the top. He sees everything. That's why Isaiah 55 says his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. I don't know why he does everything. But I do know this, that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, created everything. And they are all subjective to him. And I know that when I humble myself to him, I'm going to be safe. Now, that safety may not be a long life on this earth. It might not be a wealthy life on this earth. But I'm going to be safe in the hands of God forever. And the evil one cannot touch me. No one who is born of God can be touched by the evil, by the evil one, 1 John says. And so, without God's permission, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones. And this might be something new for you. Maybe you're not in the point in your faith where you've recognized that there's a spiritual battle going on. 
And that's why there's so much evil in the world. It's one of the, the theological reasons is because we're in a war. Look at verse 17. He says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then he throws in verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That doesn't mean that Jesus was half God and half man. It means that he was 100% human nature and 100% divine nature, the fullness of de deity. That's so important. Look at one more, Hebrews 1, one more on this point. Jesus, the mighty God before his birth. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. This, is, this, this passage right here answers the issue with other religions that come up with new ways, like Joseph Smith and, and what is it, the Russell guy from, from Jehovah Witnesses, I forget his first name. But people who try to add to the Bible or create a new religion, you know, or sometimes you and I ask that question, why isn't... You know, why isn't God revealing more? Look at, this, look at this passage, Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, that's an interesting phrase, the New Testament writers believe that when Christ went up and was ascended, that was the inaugural part of the, of the last days. Now, I know when I was in Bible school, this caused me to stumble a little bit. That's a pretty long time for the last days, isn't it? <laughs> 2,000 years, why hasn't he come back yet? You know, but it, it gave me confidence in realizing that, you know what, they thought they were in their last, they considered the last days. And it's a way of looking at the whole of Scripture. Well, look, look, look what it says. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his what? By his son. The primary revelation of Christ, of God today, is Jesus whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. You and I wouldn't even be able to stay on this planet if it wasn't for the Son of God. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Jesus Christ is the final revelation of God. We know that. And, 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 and how, we re, how we respond to who Jesus is will determine where we spend eternity. It'll also determine how we relate to the true God, the one true God. Um, when I was uh, 17 or 18 years old, when I came back to Christ, um, and gave my life to Christ. I was so grateful for a man named Dean Foster who was part of Youth for Christ, and uh, he, he led a Bible study for a bunch of us. And I was, I think, the youngest person in that. I think it was a lot of college students at the time. I was in high school, and he would literally drive from Homewood, Illinois, all the way to the north side of Chicago where I lived in, near uh, Jefferson Park. And uh, actually, it was in, I think it was in Albany Park where he did the Bible study. And it was through the book of Hebrews. And I'll never forget that because I was, at that time I was like, whoa, Hebrews, that's heavy. Lots of, you know, Melchizedek, sacrifices, Old Testament, whoa. But, you know, that transformed my life, getting into Hebrews. And I want to recommend that book to you if you've never been in it. Um, because the whole theme of it is Jesus is better than. He's better than. It was written to Jewish Christians who were tempted to go back to Judaism and give up their, their Christianity because they were suffering, because the circumstances were bad. I'll go back to Judaism. 
or because, you know, they, they wanted the rituals, you know. And, he, and a lot of times he says Jesus is more superior than the angels. He, he goes a whole chapter on how Jesus is more superior than Moses. And, 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 and when you read through it, you can start to apply it. What are, the, what are the things that we're tempted to think are better than Jesus in our culture today? Self-help, uh, materialism, comfort, wealth, you know, status. And the book of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus is better than any of those. Why? Not because we get our prayers answered when we, go, when we come to church and do the Christian thing. It's because of who he is. He is the God of the universe. He's the mighty God. He is the one that sustains all things. It's because of who he is that we can know for sure that he's better than anything this world has to offer. There's a verse in Hebrews that says they didn't consider the world, they were not considered worthy of the world, you know, or something like that. I'm mis misquoting, that's not good. All right, but they were looking ahead to their forward promise, and they, they, the idea was that these saints that suffered and that lived by faith, they, 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 they saw the world for what it was, passing, and they, they looked forward to a city that was not their own, a city, a heavenly city that God had called them towards. That's not popular today because we, don't, uh, we, we tend to want the here and now, and we don't really believe in an afterlife. The average person today, I think, just kind of doesn't really even know if there's an afterlife, doesn't even think about it. All that matters is what you've done for me lately. All right, let's uh, real fast give you a, 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 a quick overview of Jesus in the Old Testament. All right, you're like, what? How the heck is he going to do that? 1 p.m., baby. All right, um, John 5, 39 and 40. This is what Jesus said, one of the most convicting passages, and I think it applies to you and I because we're in church, and he spoke this to religious people. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I want you to realize this. The people he was speaking to, all the people in the Gospels, all the book of Acts, the only Bible they had was the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. You and I, we spend so much time in the New Testament, and we think the Old Testament doesn't relate. That's a wrong assumption. Look at what Jesus said. He said, they, the very scriptures that testify about me what does that mean? It means that the Old Testament has Jesus in it. The Messiah is in it. It's all Christ, Christocentric. It's Christ-centered. And I'll bet you and I, and I grew up for most of my Christian life not knowing that. I really thought that Christ starts in Matthew. You know, a few prophecies here and there, but that's it. But that's not the case. At the end of Luke, you remember that story when they're on the road to Emmaus? It's an amazing story. Everyone's like so sad. They're all bummed out. Jesus had just died. They're all about to give up hope. They're walking, and some guy starts walking alongside them. You remember who it is? It's Jesus, yeah. And it, it, says, it literally says they were kept from recognizing him. And so he talks to them, and he says, he goes, why are you guys so discouraged and sad? And they're like, don't you know what's happened? And uh, he, ironically, he's the only one that did know what was happening. And he goes, no, tell me. And they're like, oh, this, this prophet of God, Jesus, he did all these things, these miracles, and he healed people, and he did all these things, and now he's dead. The, the Romans crucified him. It's over, you know. And what is it? look at what he says. I, I don't, I'm sorry I don't have it for you, but I'll read it to you. It's in Luke 24, verse 25. Um, he said to them, oh, Foolish you are, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter the glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. There's actually, a, they made a movie of this, and it's really good. Somebody in this church recommended it to me, and I watched it. There's a, it's on Netflix, too. You can watch it, or Amazon Prime, one of those. It's called The Emmaus Road. It's a short movie. It's like an hour. But it, it actually has Jesus walking them through the Old Testament and the disciples. It's, 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 it's a low budget, but it was done pretty well. I'd recommend it. The Emmaus Road. Um, but look at what he says. He says, beginning... He goes through all of it. So I'm going to do that right now. Okay, here we go. No, I'm going to just give you an overview. There are at least six messianic predictions in the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. Even in Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve had sinned and they're cursed and they're kicked out of the garden, there's a promise. Do you remember that promise? That there's going to come the seed of a woman. Well, first of all, there's no such thing as a seed of a woman in a sense because it, what, where does the seed come from? From the man. So the seed of a woman, many people believe that was already a prediction of the virgin birth. From the seed of a woman, there will become one that will come, and he will crush the head of the serpent. His, his heel will be bruised, but he will crush. Uh, uh, theologians and, and biblical scholars know that that is a prophecy of the Messiah that was to come, to give Adam and Eve hope, and the people who were listening to reading Genesis for the first time, no matter how many thousands of years ago that was, that, you know what, there is going to be a redeemer, all right? Um, I won't go through all those. There's also 11 psalms that celebrate the person and work of the coming Messiah. It talks about the crucifixion. It talks about the resurrection. Psalm 1610 says that uh, David said that he, he, speaking ahead of the resurrection of Jesus, he said that uh, his that Jesus would not be abandoned to the grave, nor would, uh, the, nor would God let his Holy One see decay. Acts 2 actually quotes this verse. So the, the New Testament disciples who were filled with the Spirit quoted these verses. They realized, and I think it's probably they got that from Jesus. This is Jesus' interpretation of, of, of the Old Testament. Did you know that Jesus appeared to people in the Old Testament? The angel of the Lord appeared several times. Uh, at least one-third of the time, uh, the angel of the Lord, it would seem to be, would be a Christophany, it would be an appearance of Jesus. You say, well, why do you say that? Because whenever an angel would appear, he would speak in the third person about God. But when the angel of the Lord appears, he speaks first person of God. This is with Hagar in Genesis 16, where uh, Hagar is out in the desert, and she's pregnant by dubious means, and she's feeling rejected. She has Ishmael, you know, Abraham slept with her. And God says, she says, oh, you are the God who sees me. And she literally calls this angel of the Lord that appears to her, she, call, she equates him with God. Same is true with Abraham when he's about to slew Isaac, slay Isaac. The angel of the Lord calls out to him. And again, it's, it's, it's Yahweh, it's God, God himself calling out. So this angel of the Lord is equated with deity, with God. And these, are, these, are, these, these happen quite a bit. Uh, many people believe as well with uh, Exodus 3, even at the burning, the burning bush. Um, it literally says that the angel of the Lord uh, was there, and, and he says, I am. Uh, it was God who appeared to Moses. Moses called him an angel in order to let us know that it was not God, the Father whom he saw, for whose angel could father the father be? But the only begotten son, the angel of great counsel, who said, I am who I am, the great Yahweh. Um, Daniel, the one like a son of man, 
when he has that vision. We'll look at that later uh, at the 2 o'clock time frame. The one, uh, the one like a son of God. Remember in Daniel 3, remember in, when the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the uh, fiery furnace. And then there's a fourth one in, and it says he was like one, like, looked like one like a son of God. So you can track through these. You can look at this. By the way, if you're looking for a good book on this topic, Michael Rodelnik. Anybody ever listen to Open Line on Moody Radio? Fantastic. If you've never, he's a, he's a professor at Moody. He's a Jewish man who came to Christ, I believe, when he was a teenager in his 20s, actually. And uh, very, he's, a, he's a professor of intercultural and Jewish studies at Moody Bible Institute. He's written a book called The Messianic Hope. And he literally traces through the Old Testament and helps you to see how they were all looking forward to a Messiah and how Jesus is literally the hope that they were looking for. Uh, he's also written a book called The 50 Most Important Bible Questions. And I actually have a copy. I was going to bring it today, um, but I forgot it. But that's another good book for you to check out. Um, so the angel of the Lord, uh, we've got that. Let me give you a couple more here. 39, at least 39 predictions of the Messiah in Old Testament prophets. Uh, the, the prophets in the Old Testament. Messiah would be born of a virgin. His birthplace would be Bethlehem. John the Baptist would be his forerunner. Okay, they would gamble for his clothes. Um, it was further announced ahead of time that Messiah would enter Jerusalem, which turned out to be Palm Sunday and triumph as the crowd shouted Hosanna. All of that was talked about in the Old Testament, that he would be betrayed in less than a week by one of his disciples. Okay, um, and then there's the suffering death of Jesus, the Messiah. You say, was that, you know, was the cross prophesied? Yes, it was. Isaiah 53. If I, could only have you, if I could only have a person read one chapter in the, in the Old Testament, I would say Isaiah 53 has got to be one of the top, top three or top five. Why? Because it talks about the suffering servant. And it specifically says that this suffering servant, this Messiah figure, is going to lay down his life. He's going to take on the sins, our sins, what we deserve, the wrath of God. By his wounds we are healed. By his stripes, not many people believe the stripes were even prophesying that he'd be whipped and lashed. But it says, each of us have gone astray, and he has laid the sin of, of uh, that, uh, our sin on him, the suffering servant. Many Jewish people have come to Christ after actually seriously looking at Isaiah 53. Zechariah 12 says that he would be pierced in his side. Now, they didn't always do that to everybody. They pierced his side. So what's the point here is that, you know what, the Old Testament, we need to become familiar with that. We need to see that, that the Jewish people were looking forward to a Messiah, and Jesus fits that. He is the mighty God. Now, going back to what, what do you think is the most, um, the greatest miracle in the Bible? Anybody have a vote? Lazarus, the blind. I would love to have seen Lazarus come back from the dead. Yeah. Yeah, creation was, is, is hard to top. I know that. You can't top. Resurrection, we had a few for that in the first service. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vote for, uh, and I like regeneration, what uh, Paul said. I'd say regi regeneration for me is second. Resurrection is the proof of Christianity. If that miracle did not happen, we would not be standing here today. So I would say resurrection is the most critical miracle. But I would say the most amazing miracle is the incarnation. It's what we are celebrating this Christmas. That's why we celebrate it. Um, the idea that God himself might become a man, a baby. You know, what's, you know what blows me away every year about the Christmas story is how messed up it is. 
They, 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 they're running around. They don't even, it seems like from human perspective, they, it doesn't look like they know where he's going to live, where he's going to be born. There's a king that's trying to kill him. And, and they're, they're, you know, they run out to Egypt. You know, there's these wise men. She's pregnant and like nobody did, had, you know, she didn't have sex with anyone. You're like, what's going on here? Uh, Elizabeth. There's all these like amazing things happening. But in the midst of it, God is orchestrating his protection, his plan for this child. And that just blows me away because what that shows to me is that God is not only able to do the big stuff, you know, like the miracle, but he's able to work through broken people, through life's messed up choices, through events, through death, through murder, through pain, and still accomplish his plan. He takes our brokenness. And that, if that doesn't, you know, help you to, to realize that the God that we worship is a mighty God. It says, uh, Isaiah 7 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Somebody asked after the first service, why is Jesus not called Emmanuel in the New Testament? I mean, he is in the prophecy in Matthew 1. But uh, the, the angels told Joseph and Mary to name him Jesus, Yeshua. He who saves. That's what Jesus Christ, Jesus means. Christ is the Messiah or the anointed one. But Emmanuel, it says he will be called Emmanuel because Emmanuel means what? God with us. All right, Philippians 2. This is a, a fantastic passage. I don't know if I should unpack it, but I'll just read it. Write this down. It's, it's really the heart of the incarnation. If you're ever wondering, how, what, how does that work? God becoming man. Look at what this says. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, so he existed as God before time, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Some uh, translations say something to be grasped. He's God. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He took on the human nature, being made in human likeness, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. Whoa, that's the wrong verse. Where am I at? Yeah, I hate when I skip verses. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue in knowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen? All right, Jesus, the mighty God during his earthly life. Did he do anything on earth when he was on earth as a, as a, in his three years of ministry that would show him to be God? You know, I hope you have an answer to this when people, when you talk to people about Christ, or when even when the Jehovah Witnesses come knocking on your door, um, don't just shut the door. Maybe it's time that you start actually loving them and responding to them. He had power over nature. He calmed the storm. He walked on water. He caused the fish, the, the great catches of fish. Even when he calmed the storm, they said, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? I love the spiritual journey of the disciples throughout the Gospels. They don't get it at first. I wouldn't. I would not. If I was one of the disciples, I would not have believed. In fact, that's why in John, Jesus says, unless the, the, unless, um, the Father draws them, no one can come to the Son. There's a sense in which 
you know, you, you have to have your eyes opened. You know, I believe it's our choice to believe, but I also believe God opens the eyes. Um, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, pray that the God of this world, um, that he has blinded the, the, the eyes of the unbelievers. The, the light, pray that the light of the gospel shines. I would not believe a human being is God either. That would be very hard. I'd have to actually interact with him. And I, I, it'd have to be through the Holy Spirit. Power over nature. Power over disease. He healed the diseases. Power over demons. Power over sin. Remember that story where he heals the paralytic? The guy that's lowered through, lowered through the roof? What's the first thing he says to the paralytic? Yeah, what a spoil, what a, what a weird, what, you know, why, is, why are you going there, Jesus? Well, because he wanted, to, he wanted to show them that he has the authority to forgive sins. He also wanted to show them that the, the man's greatest need was not his physical issues. Our deepest need is a spiritual, recon, our, our relationship with God. So he shows his authority over sin by raising him up, but he also shows his authority to forgive sin. That only God can do that. They even said, who alone but God can do that? Jesus receives worship. After he walked on water, it says they worshiped him as the son of God. Um, he said, uh, um, and, 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 uh, and when, when, when John, Thomas, who doesn't believe, and, and says, Lord, I need to see you to believe you, and, and, and Jesus appears to him, the resurrected Jesus appears to him, what does Thomas do? He falls down on his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. He worships Jesus as mighty God. Angels never receive worship in the Bible. In fact, they refuse it. Jesus receives it. There's many other instances where he receives worship. Uh, he also claims to be equal with God. Now, there's, there's, a, there's a website out there that says, did Jesus ever say he was God? You know, well, he claimed to be equal with God several times. And uh, he said, I am the father of one. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And the religious leaders knew he was doing that. Okay? Now, I read to you earlier the, the, the vision of Daniel, of the son of man, right? Let me skip to Mark 14. This is right where he's standing before the, um, the, uh, the Sanhedrin and the high priest in Mark 14. But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Mark 14, 61. Again, the high priest asked, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Here's a Jewish high priest who has an idea of God having a son. Interesting. Christians didn't just make that up. It's, it's, it's throughout the Bible. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the son of man... Daniel 7, that, that authority figure, sitting on the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. There's an amazing juxtaposition there. This God, this mighty God, this man, Jesus, is going to come back and he's going to judge and rule as king. And you're going to see him sitting on the clouds. But what does he do at his first coming? He dies. He gets beaten. He gets rejected. He's, he humbles himself to, to death on a cross for you and I. One more verse on this topic. Revelation 1, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, but when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, 
And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. This is John on the island of Patmos in Revelation 1, the vision of Jesus he has. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I think that's the appropriate response. If you and I were to see Jesus for who he is today, we would fall on our, on our face. But then look at this. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm eternal. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. We serve a mighty God. Real fast, let me close with some practical application if, if, if it's even needed. Number one, he's our source. If, he, if Jesus is the mighty God, he is our source of salvation alone. And he is our eternal security. It's in Christ alone that we find salvation. That means self-help isn't going to do it. Being religious isn't going to do it. Okay? Going to other gods isn't going to do it. He alone has, is the source of salvation. And he's the source of eternal security. If, you are a, if you've put your faith in Christ and you have been born again of the Spirit and you are a child of God, you can never lose that. Peter says we are kept by the power of God, the mighty God. John 10 says, uh, all that the Father gives me I have in my hand and no one can snatch them from me. So if you are a true child of God, then you are eternally secure. And if that doesn't give you the most ultimate joy and confidence, I don't know what will. I really don't. I know you and I are stuck in blind mode. We don't see eternity. We live in here, and we, don't, we think this is all there is. But there is an eternity that's waiting for us. And so if you're a child of God today, and he is your source of salvation, man, that is so good. If you're not... Now is the time to repent and to believe in Jesus. This season is a great time to do that. Don't wait. Number two, he's our source of power and the strength of our lives. If you are a Christian and you have not gotten to the point where you recognize that the, the, living the Christian life is impossible, then you've missed it. Something's wrong. And, and forgive me and forgive Pastor Dell and any other church leaders who've told you, yeah, just try harder. <laughs> you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Be good. You know, come on. No, it's impossible. That's why the New Testament says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. For it is God who works in you to will and to act. It is, the Christian life is not, or even becoming a Christian is not, I'm going to become really good so that I earn God's acceptance. And then I'm going to try really hard to keep earning his acceptance. And the better I am, and then I compare myself to, no, it's this. I am no good. I'm, I'm not, I'm worthless when it comes to my good deeds. All of my righteousness is like filthy rags. I need a savior. I need Jesus to be the mighty God who saves me. And you know what? I need to die to myself. Jesus is not my life coach who gives me inspiration to live better. He's not my therapist who helps me get on the, on the right way. Yeah, he'll coach me. He'll, he'll give me the therapy I need. But that's not, he's not a lucky charm that I just like roll the dice with. He's not Jesus Claus. 
He's the, the mighty God of the universe. And if I'm going to live in him, I need to die to myself and, 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 and surrender to his power. That's why Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. I was talking to a, one of our men this, uh, yesterday who was in, is in one of our life groups. And he was saying, you know, it's so good to be in a life group now where other men are holding me accountable. And I said, well, what are they holding you accountable for? And he said, well, this, today we did a study on um, spending time with God on my quiet times. And, and, they, and one of the things that the author that suggested in the book that they were going through said that to make an appointment with God, you know, and to, and to make that time a, a priority. And he said, you know, I, when I've noticed that when I do that, man, I feel like God is so, I sense God's presence. I'm able to walk in the power of the Spirit. But when I'm not doing that, it just, I just kind of drift. And so the whole purpose of the Christian life is to become more like Jesus from the inside out. But you can't do that unless you spend time with him and relate to him. And so at the beginning of this sermon, I said, the main, keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is not the bird seed. <laughs> the main seed, the main thing is knowing Jesus and being with him and relating to him and allowing his power to, to flow through you. And sometimes that means dying to self. Last one, he often reveals himself and is received in humility. If you want to experience the mighty God, we need to humble ourselves. I need to humble myself. Look at what Paul said. He said, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the what? It's the power of God. There's something incredibly humbling. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians. He says, Jews demand signs. Greeks demand wisdom. Look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. Really, the God of the universe is going to be hung on a cross and cursed? That's like the worst thing ever. And foolishness to Gentiles. Yeah, whoever wants to gain his life must give it away. <laughs> but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. I love that phrase. It's not about mustering up a bunch of strength. It's acknowledging our weakness. So this morning, if you're feeling kind of weak in your own strength and like you're not faithful, you might be a, a candidate to experience the mighty God. Last verse, I think. Yeah, it is. Because here's, I'm going to go back to this. Some of you are struggling today. Some of you have not had the answered prayer. Some of you are dealing with things that are really difficult. And you've been begging the mighty God to answer. And I want to encourage you today that from Scripture I can say He's still there. He's on the throne. He is so much for you. He is not against you. He knows what's best for you. He loves you. I don't know His timing. I got a whole list of things that God has done awesome in my life that are so mighty I could praise Him forever. Even if, if, if it was just the cross, that's all I would need. But I, He's answered so many prayers. But I've got a lot of brokenness and a lot of crushed, despairing hopes that are fading sometimes. And I long for God. Look at what the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul had that. He had the same thing. He had a, a thorn in his flesh. And it says, three, three times I pleaded with the Lord, take it away, take it away, take it away. But the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. In other words, I'm going to have to deal with this, this whatever it is. And it's in my weakness that I'm going to experience God's power. You know, all those miracles in the, in the Old Testament, you notice there's a common theme? You know, walk around the, the walls of Jericho seven times and then the walls are going to fall, really? You know, what's up with that? Gideon, you know, uh, go out and just beat the, beat the horns and the trumpets, you know, or set the, set the worship team in front of everybody and send them out first. And as they're worshiping God, all the battles that God defeated for his people were always done by him. And it was to show us that it was not their power. It was them admitting weakness. And I think that's where you and I struggle. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, and in hardships, in persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We serve a mighty God. Jesus is a mighty God. I want to encourage you to go to him for salvation. If you have not, rejoice in eternal security that you have if you're a child of God. Allow him to be the source of your power and the strength of your life. And I, 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 and I pray for all of us that we will receive him in humility, just as this little baby was born in humility. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that you are for us and not against us. Thank you that you love us. Lord, your name is truly wonderful. You are the Prince of Peace, and you are the Everlasting Father. You are the Wonderful Counselor, and you are the Mighty God, El Gabor. Lord, I pray that you'd be mighty in our congregation's lives. I pray that, Lord, that in our weakness, Lord, you would be made strong. Lord, I ask in Jesus' name that you would accomplish your will today, that the zeal of the Lord will accomplish it. In Christ's name we pray.